you're tuned to the conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. The city had until this week to come up with a site for a new landfill for Oahu's trash, but state lawmakers passed Act 73, which added constraints on conservation land and residential areas. And then last month, the Board of Water Supply's chief engineer gave a thumbs down to all four proposed sites. Ernie Lau said no. They were just too close to the city's aquifer. And after what we went through with the fuel contamination in Red Hill, the city was left with no choice but to ask for a two-year extension. We talked to Roger Babcock, director of the city's Environmental Services Department, yesterday afternoon about our limited options. Babcock is a civil and environmental engineer. You know, the reason we really we asked for more time was so that we could look outside of the no pass and. Where we were at during the process up till now was we were looking at all sites that really are inside the no-pass zone. And the reason for that was really Act 73, which further restricted where we could possibly locate. And it basically doesn't leave anything outside of the no-pass zone except for federal lands. And we had not pursued those before because of just timing and, and issues associated with that and, and previous attempts that weren't all that successful. However, we do have hope that there's some possibilities on that side. Okay, when you say um, and then, when you say federal land, like where are we thinking? Well, there are some federal lands in the Waipio area, like Iroquois Point area. There are some other federal lands in areas that we would probably not consider uh, on the west side which also are outside the no-pass zone, Lualuale, for example. Right. Well, in order to access these federal lands, I mean, what's it going to take? That's a good question, and we're really not sure exactly. I would point out that we're also, in addition to federal lands, we would also be looking to free up some possibilities by modifying Act 73, not necessarily a full repeal, but there's really two parts of that that are important that have taken away a lot of the sites, and that is the conservation lands, restricting those out of it, and also the buffer distance of a half mile to residential and schools and hospitals. If both of those were repealed, at least in a couple of locations, there's a couple of places that might be suitable. And so we would also be looking at that. The other possibility is to look at not changing anything in Act 73, but instead perhaps purchasing some properties and then changing their designation to free up some spaces where there are just a few homes, for example, within a half mile of a potential location that could potentially be purchased. The zoning changed so that they're not residential any longer and then would be owned presumably by the city, then we could perhaps free up a site or two. Does the siting have to be near the H power plant? Well, the closer to H power, the better in terms of, you know, costs and for hauling. But it's not necessarily a, a requirement. It would be something that our advisory committee evaluated as a criteria. And so the locations that are closer score higher for, you know, for that reason. Accessibility, you know, is an issue and sort of the quality of roads and size of roads between H-Power and the new landfill location, you know, are important. But road improvements could be done, you know, depending on where it is. But that is an issue. You know, residential neighborhoods and things like that would be, you know, not good even passing through them, right? So that is a concern. You know, at one time, I think they were talking about the Kapa'a Quarry, but you know, I think that's too close to the shoreline, you know, but you do have a large hole. Yeah, so there's an Amaron quarry along H3, which is a potential site that was evaluated in the past that is outside the no-pass zone, but it was eliminated by Act 73. And is the thinking that if we choose a place, then it's got to have a long life? The exercise that we've done so far, we, we come up with a size that's needed for a 20-year life to handle all of the waste that currently goes to the landfill, which is our ash and the non-combustibles and special waste that have to go there, as well as when H-Power is down for scheduled maintenance and, and unscheduled maintenance sometimes, that plus all of the construction and demolition waste that currently goes to PBT. So that is actually sort of doubles the waste stream as is. So that's the size that we're looking at, 20 years of that combined waste stream. And have we started talks with our congressional delegation about the use of federal land and what they can do to help us? We have not. 
Have we broached the military at all? Yes, we have. And we will be pursuing that at higher levels beginning immediately. You know, we are working to try and shut down Red Hill, but the whole issue of the aquifer and the value of the aquifer and keeping it pristine has just been underscored. So, you know, if the military could somehow help us find a solution, that would be a great help. Yeah, it certainly would. And that's good. You know, partnership, helping each other is good. But I think it's good to have a reasonable, uh, tempered expectations. You know, military lands generally would have either express purposes or potential future purposes or things like that. And, you know, that's understandable. I don't think we've ever, you know, the city's never given any land to the military because we generally have designated uses for everything, either now or in the future. And and so, we, you know, it's understandable. It's, it's difficult for um, for anybody to give away land that, right. that, that you have. And, you know, they do have national security mission and, and very, very specific things that, that they need their land for. So we, we understand that, and that's, um, you know, part of the reason why we haven't, you know, necessarily pursued that to the same degree as, as other stuff that was more readily available. Are we talking about any kind of a town hall meeting with the West Side, or how are the talks going with the community because we are in a pickle right now. Yeah, so we haven't done anything about that yet. It's all it's all quite new still. We are going to, you know, we've applied for an extension of a couple of years. Uh, if we are able to make an agreement with, say, with the military or or something else on a shorter time frame, and we're able to then start our EIS process and get things going, then we will not delay. And you know, as soon as we get a viable site, we would pursue that immediately. But we do need a little bit of breathing room to try and work those things out. And then I think as soon as we know more, then we would be reaching out. We do have a meeting on the west side, which is an update what's going on at the landfill. The next one of those is in January. I wanted to mention that, you know, we're doing a lot of things to limit the need, you know, for a landfill or make a landfill, the next landfill, last a really long time. So we're doing all kinds of recycling programs. We're doing waste minimization, source reduction activities, and there's all kinds of things going on in that area. So we're trying to reduce the waste stream, which is good. We are pursuing and we have under contract to build a ash recycling facility. It's our same contract operator that has built a full-scale facility in Pennsylvania, and we've been following that, and we've contracted to have one produced here. But reduce the amount of ash by 50 or 60 percent and converting it into a an aggregate replacement material mm-hmm. that can go into asphalt and concrete and that uh, replaces sand you know that alone could sort of double mm-hmm. the life of a landfill so we're going to do what we can and work hard to find another site that was roger babcock director of the city's department of environmental services talking about the problem the city has with finding a new, new landfill site on oahu It has asked the Planning Commission and the State Land Use Commission for a two-year extension since the Board of Water Supply has nixed all the proposed sites because they could threaten our drinking water aquifer. State lawmakers also passed an act which prevents conservation land from being used and also increases boundaries to protect residential neighborhoods. This is The Conversation on statewide, member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Now it's time for your Backyard Quiz. In today's Backyard Quiz, we're thinking about one of the many species that have gone extinct in Hawaii. This one was a scarlet red bird, about five inches in length. It was last seen on Molokai in 1963, although some reports have it surviving into the 1970s. 
Uh, people said these beauties looked like a ball of flame, especially the males, which were brightly red all around. The females were less colorful, with a brownish tinge to their bellies. Their call was compared to the sound of someone cutting wood in the distance. A 19th century a British naturalist named Scott Barchard Wilson was the first to write about them. He found a female and two males while lost in a fog on Molokai. They were endangered even then. Their bright red coloration made them a target because their bright red feathers were sought after for the robes and the cloaks of the ali'i. For today's Backyard Quiz, we're looking for the name of this bird. Call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right scores a HPR reusable tote bag. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nareet Hawaii, which supports nonprofits providing affordable housing for families, such as the Institute for Human Services. NareetHawaii.com. It's been almost a month since the military began a probe into the release of toxic firefighting foam concentrate at Red Hill. The Army is expected to provide the report to the Navy any day now, but it's not likely the Navy will talk about it or release it before it's had time to review it. That spill is the latest at the Navy's underground fuel facility. Last year, the holidays began with fuel-contaminated drinking water for more than 90,000 customers on the military's water system. That triggered thousands of families to relocate temporarily to Oahu hotels. Throughout the many decades, the Sierra Club of Hawaii has kept up pressure on the military to be more transparent with the public and to speed up the defueling and shutdown. We asked uh, um, Sierra Club Director Wayne Tanaka to reflect on what we've gained and lost during this water crisis, as well as the recent spill of toxic firefighting foam concentrate known as PFAS. We've made some really historic progress this year. I mean, just to get the Pentagon to concede that after years of seeing the opposite, that this Red Hill facility is actually not essential to national security, and it's actually, you know, something that might have worked in the 40s, but eight years later, it's much more of a liability than an asset. And that's huge, you know, but at the same time, the challenges have continued, and the harms, especially with this latest AFFF spill, you know, have been almost unconscionable. And so I'm really grateful for all of the community members, the, the community leaders, the organizations that have rallied and stood up to protect our island and protect our water. But at the same time, it looks like we're going to need much more of that in the coming year. You know, I just was thinking back to your predecessor, you know, Marty Townsend, and she was really vocal about the dangers, the risk to our aquifer. And then, you know, to see the contamination this year, and I remember running into her when they uh, shut down the shaft the first time. And it was just stunning to think that, you know, they'd done this because there was contamination in the water. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that it's almost just what's already happened. It's, it's like a nightmare. You know, there's 5,000 gallons of fuel that's moving around in our groundwater. And we don't know, we don't really have a great idea of where it is, where it could threaten nearby municipal wells. And if it does enter our water system, the Board of Water Supply will tell you it'll be chaos. Again, with this HFLF spill, these chemicals are so incredibly toxic. You know, one drop of one of the types of chemicals found in that HFLF concentrate, that's enough to contaminate something like 2,000 Olympic-sized swimming pools under the EPA's health advisory guidelines. And we don't have a good idea of whether they were able to capture all the contamination. They still don't have soil sampling results, and yet they've gone ahead and, and poured concrete over the areas they've contaminated, which is extremely concerning because, you know, if they do find that they haven't cleaned all the contamination up, it's going to be that much harder to remediate the area. We also will have a very limited ability to go ahead and do independent testing, independent sampling, you know, to verify, you know, that, you know, that this, this, this toxic chemicals that have been cleaned up. The one thing that uh, jumped out at me, though, when I saw the release the other day is the, the list of the repairs that needed to be done, you know, that they identified. 
it was just a little dismaying to think that, you know, this didn't happen overnight. And your organization has been jumping up and down, concerned about the state of Red Hill and those tanks, you know, and it turned out to be the piping system that was the Achilles heel. Yes, that's so concerning that first they're they're only considering these these pipeline repairs as the only means to defuel. There are other ways that they could maybe move to fuel all of these tanks sooner, you know, faster and even more safely than trying to repair, you know, make these 250 repairs to a, a you know, a pretty decrepit, uh, you know, pipeline system. The other thing that issue that that raises is, is just the credibility of, of of the Navy. You know, I think in early 2021 they even put out a press release saying that the Red Hill facility is operations meet or exceeds all regulatory standards, and that press release is now removed from their website. Not surprisingly, but. You know, we've been shown over and over and over again that that simply was not the case, that they were really, you know, just playing with our lives and playing with our future. And we have no assurance that that's, you know, with their continued behaviors and lack of transparency, I don't think they've moved past or, you know, gone beyond that point to where they actually are taking environmental and our public health and our, our fate seriously the way that they should have been. Well, the EPA has just issued the draft order, the work order, you know, covering what what they need to do going forward. The EPA says that, you know, it's calling for, you know, regular community meetings open to all, uh, not just to a select group. But, you know, they did identify, you know, deficiencies up at the facility, you know, after their investigation. What alarmed you the most in that report, in that list? The the biggest concern that I have and that I think a lot of folks have is that the EPA is not, I think, you know, not remembering what happened with their last administrative order on consent, where for, you know, seven years, the Navy was able to essentially make its own timelines, drag its feet, and the, the Navy ended up not fulfilling the majority of its commitments under that AOC. And, you know, I, I was somewhat disappointed to see that under this new consent decree that we're still seeing the same kind of situation where the Navy for the most part, gets to control its, its timelines. The EPA is not pushing them to defuel any faster than the, the mid-2024 proposal. And there's some there's also some other things in there. You know, we're, we're still looking at it, but one of the things they propose is to have tank tightness testing for all of the existing tanks, which, you know, in itself could be dangerous, you know, given what we know about the integrity of, of these tanks and their steel liners and the concrete, um, the concrete, foundations and you know what happens if they do find out that the tank is leaking i mean that that's just such a scary prospect to, to think that you know if, if a leak does start that we have no, no safe option or plan to get that fuel out you know as, as fast as possible before it contaminates our aquifer the star advertiser just had an article in the paper about the uh, cameras that are inoperable and that those cameras won't be up and available when the defueling starts what are your thoughts on that it just strikes me as so absurd, uh, you know, like if, the, if this is the Department of Defense, this is the U.S. military, you know, they've got over $800 billion in appropriations. You know, if they want to do something quickly, they could. And, you know, just like with the feeling, it seems like they're just dragging out the process of even procuring cameras, uh, which are basic, you know, fundamental, you know, both security and, and accountability and transparency uh, mechanism. And it's just, it's... You know, it's, it's absurd that they're saying it could take up to 18 months to procure seven cameras and then putting to supply chain issues uh, without any further specificity. I mean, that's just so suspect and, and runs so counter to, you know, to their assertion that they're trying to somehow rebuild trust and, and are committing to transparency. Uh, it, just, it, just, it just doesn't make sense. Anything else you want to share just going forward? I think the stakes are so high. You know, we're, we're looking at something that will not only impact life as we know it, like every aspect of life is touched by water and our access to clean water. And if, if we lose that access, then you know, you know, we lose everything. And it's, and it's not just us, but it's, it's the future of our, of our children and our grandchildren uh, with these forever chemicals. You know, that stuff doesn't break down. It, it lasts for centuries, you know, over a thousand years. And, and, and so if we, can't, if we get another big HFLF release, if previous releases, which we're just finding out about, uh, weren't properly contained, if this most recent release wasn't cleaned up adequately, you know, we, we could be looking at you know, the poisoning of, of our descendants, poisoning of children, of people who will only know us as ancestors. And, and that's, that's it's terrifying, and, and, and I, 
know, I just you know, hope that people realize that we are in a very significant moment in the history of these islands, and, and it will take many of us doing all that we can to get the kind of accountability, the kind of res emergency response interventions that we need, you know, and that, not, not just that we need, but that our, our children and our, you know, our, our future descendants will need. You know, we just talked to uh, Roger Babcock about citing uh, a new landfill. And, uh, you know, they're going to be exploring uh, to see what solutions they can find maybe on federal land. Any thoughts on that? I mean, I know they, they want a site preferably, you know, close to H-Power. And I remember decades ago, the Sierra Club, you know, sued the city over the scrubbers uh, on the, um, the H-Power plant. But I don't know. Any thoughts on that in on the, on the landfill? You know, because there are obviously legitimate concerns about siting a landfill near an aquifer. Uh, yeah, absolutely, and it's it's a very it's a tough situation. I mean, obviously, we can't risk you know, after what we've all gone through the further contamination of of our, of our drinking water, of our aquifers. At the same time, we don't want to perpetuate and replicate the kinds of injustices that have been perpetrated upon you know certain communities, rural communities, which result in real you know concrete impacts to to public health, to you know all kinds of things. You know, I'm encouraged that there are discussions now about looking at at, at federal lands or even you know, lands that may be more appropriate, that wouldn't raise these environmental justice and these water contamination concerns. And uh, I'm hopeful that, you know, heads will prevail. At, at the same time, we also need to start taking a hard look at our waste production, like how we reduce the amount of things that we consume and throw away so that we're not, you know, just constantly looking for, you know, ever diminishing places to face our trash. It's got to be a change in behavior for everybody. Yeah, change in behavior. And I think the policies, laws, things that can have systemic impacts can be like very critical. That was Wayne Tanaka of the Sierra Club of Hawaii talking to us about how we've been affected in this past year by the Red Hill water contamination. He's grateful for the community support and awareness about our valuable water resource. It's reality check time with our partners at Honolulu Civil Beat. Legislative reporter Kevin Dayton joins us today. Hi, Kev. You've got an update for us on the women's prison? Hi, Catherine. Thanks for having me. Uh, yes, I do. Um, I think many people may remember that long history of sexual misconduct cases at the women's prison in Kailua that date back to a big scandal in the 1990s and even beyond that. Um, what's new is this particular case involves a lawsuit against the state and prison employees that went to trial in federal court last month in November. And the case involves women inmates who were sexually assaulted at the Women's Community Correctional Center, many of them in 2015 and 2016. And they went on to sue former warden Eric Tanaka and others for money damages in federal court. The lawsuit was filed by six current and former women inmates, um, including, and then against six other employees in the prison system, including two corrections officers. And, and two of those officers had been convicted of felonies for sexually assaulting inmates. And it, it's worth noting that any sexual conduct between a prison inmate and staff is a felony under Hawaii law because legally the prisoners cannot give consent, you know, no matter what. Um, the case originally went to trial in federal court in 2020, um, but it ended in a mistrial that year. And a new jury heard the case all over again last month. The women's lawyers had been seeking $8 million in damages, but in fact the jury decided to award nothing. Yeah, and the judge basically said that, uh, yeah, that the state wasn't liable. Well, it wasn't so much the judge as the jury. And, and what's kind of interesting, it's hard to know what a jury thinks as to why they would have made that decision. But what's interesting is that, Kate, the story isn't quite ending there. The lawyers who are representing the women um, who were assaulted are not letting the matter drop. They're accusing the state attorney general's office of misconduct for failing to produce some critical documents in the case. And they're also demanding a new trial, either a new trial or um, uh, essentially a uh, default judgment. Um, and they're also asking for new and additional video cameras to be installed in the women's prison to help prevent any further assaults. And a central issue in the case has been these three control stations at the prison because court documents describe about two dozen assaults of the women in those control booths. 
or in the adjoining bathrooms in 2015 and 2016. Lawyers for the women say the state long ago should have installed video cameras in those control booths to monitor what goes on inside, and they say that could have prevented the assaults. Um, Terry Revere, who represents the women, said the state um, should have known because it, it happened before. There was another prisoner who was abused in one of the control stations in 2020, 2012, I'm sorry, and that uh, guard was convicted of sex assault in that case, and the, state, the inmate went on to sue the state. Um, and another fact is that the state hired a consultant to inspect the security systems in, the, in that particular prison. And in 2013, the consultant came back with a report that the video systems were seriously lacking. They had poor quality video, obsolete equipment, and lots of blind spots and so on. Well, it's just so surprising that those cameras are still aren't fixed. It's, it's really puzzling, too, because... and, and this is another strange fact about this is the lawyers who are representing the women in the case have actually offered to put up $2,500 in um, their own money if the state will simply install these relatively affordable cameras inside the control booths. Um, the State Department of Public Safety is responding saying that, you know, it, it's basically that it has to go through the official procurement process and they just can't accept an offer like that. So public safety is saying that it's currently using federal funds to try to replace uh, outdated cameras that aren't working and install additional cameras and blind spots throughout the entire prison system. And they have awarded a contract uh, as of the end of October to have a consultant do an assessment aimed at replacing and updating cameras and uh, rewiring all the facilities. Yeah, I mean, it, it just seems so surprising that it's taking this long, particularly if these are, you know, uh, areas where they've known um, that there were some incidents involved. It's in a the puzzle. Inmates. It's mm -hmm. a puzzle. When you think that a consultant would come back in 2013 and say, boy, this is an obsolete system, and then you would still have the same issue uh, come to light in federal court, you know, almost a decade later. Uh, you know, I mean, the system is, is chronically underfunded, especially when it comes to construction projects. So that's certainly an issue. But these cameras, cameras are generally not seen as a very expensive item. It's something that you would think that the system would be able to manage if it, if it was determined to do so. Right. Yeah. Well, we've got another legislative session coming up, and prisons have always been a, a hot topic uh, uh, issue there. So uh, we'll have to see what happens. But thanks so much, Kevin. Thank you, Catherine. That was reporter Kevin Dayton with today's Reality Check. You can read the full story at civilbeat.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Mobi, a Hawaii wireless company since 2005, featuring a locally-based customer care team committed to problem-solving and personal service for each client. Learn more at Mobi.com. Next time on The World, three siblings from South Africa. A brother and sister sing and play guitar while a younger one dances. They have become a TikTok smash. Their cover of the Eurythmics classic, Sweet Dreams, got a boost from Annie Lennox herself, who tweeted, you're going to love these gorgeous and massively talented young peeps. Meet Biko, Mana, and Mafundo on the world. Beginning this afternoon at 1. New Year celebrations in Hawaii can be epic, packed with close friends and family, great food, and spectacular fireworks shows. It can also be traumatizing for pets. The loud explosive sounds from firecrackers and aerials that have been going off in some neighborhoods since Halloween have spooked cats and dogs, and many families have been reporting missing pets as a result. With the New Year's Eve approaching, many pet owners are reaching out across social media for ways to keep their pets safe during the noisy festivities. The Conversations Russell Subiano talked to Thomas uh, Hans from the Hawaiian Humane Society this morning. 
I've seen comments on social media and in just everyday chatter from pet owners who are concerned about their pets reacting to fireworks over the New Year's holiday. Can you talk about some of the stories that you've heard in the past about reactions that pets have to the noise from the fireworks? Yeah, I mean, it's common when, you know, there's sudden loud noises, uh, such as fireworks, pets get hacked erratically. So I know of a, of a dog who could scale a six foot fence quite easily. It was a bigger dog, of course, but that's just what happens when a pet is really scared. They react in, um, in ways they normally wouldn't, you know, with the shaking, sometimes they'll run away to try and find a safe space. Um, sometimes they'll bury themselves further into your home to be safer or come to you for comfort. Yeah, I think we've all had a friend or a neighbor or it's happened to to us that, you know, that our, our pets are uh, get real anxious um, and have either, you know, just gone crazy or, or, or just went missing. I mean, just tried to get away from the noise and, and just disappeared. Do you know if there are any numbers on how many pets go missing or, or suffer serious injury because they're trying to escape the noise? I don't have exact numbers, but I do know we do see an uptick around the holidays, and that could be for a multitude of reasons, but we do believe um, that fireworks around the New Year's holiday at least plays a part of it. Um, as far as numbers goes, I don't have an exact number, and you know, since this year hasn't happened yet, uh, I don't have this year, but you know, there are steps you can take to make sure that you and your pets are, are safe this holiday. Yeah, let's let's talk about solutions. The the most obvious seems to be to relocate to an area where you know the noise won't upset your pet, but I know that's not always a possibility. So I've read about some other things that people are suggesting. Uh, there's special kinds of collars with pheromones out there. I recently read that some people give CBD oil to their pets to calm them down. And I've also heard some people use just straight up tranquilizers to kind of knock their pets out. What are some of the options that are out there? Some of the safe, you know, and and, uh, common options that are out there? Yeah, of course. I mean, you know, keeping your companion animal in a safe space indoors and, um, you know, not leaving it unattended outside is a really great first step. And if your pet further is scared of loud noises, uh, leaning on the radio or television at a normal volume you know, to provide your pet with some companionship. It also, you know, adds familiar noises in the house um, that eases their anxiety a little bit. And um, if you can't keep your pets indoors, consider keeping them in an enclosed garage. You know, as you said before, animals may panic and escape the yard, and even if it's fenced. So ensuring your pets have proper identification is um, also very important. If your pet does get lost, having that microchip uh, a microchip implant will, uh, you know, help get reunite you with your pet faster if it is found, right? Mm-hmm. So the microchip implant, which holds um, a, a serial number where they're able, we're able to look in an online database and get your contact information. So making sure that it's um, updated in your online database uh, from the microchip manufacturer or a free service like findanimals.org is really important. Uh, also, I recommend putting a collar on, even if it's just for the day, just in case. Um, as far as uh, things like CBD or tranquilizers or those kind of methods, it's best to consult with your veterinarian first. You know, giving your veterinarian a call, explaining how your pet reacts to these fireworks. And they're going to have the most up-to-date research on things like CBD. Uh, they'll be able to recommend medication if needed. And, and they're able to, uh, you know, you know your pet the best with your veterinarian. And you guys are able to come up with a, uh, a treatment plan um, for this event. And I, I've seen some pets remain relatively calm or, or kind of just ignore what's going on. But I've, I've heard plenty of stories of pets having an averse reaction to the, the noise and the smoke and just the general activity. Do you have an idea of like what percentage of pets are impacted by the noise and, and the smoke and all, you know, all the things that come with fireworks? Mm, yeah, I don't have an exact number. 
um, about what percentage of pets are, but I want to say a lot of pets are afraid of loud, sudden noises, as most of us are. And the thing about pets is they don't understand that, you know, this is a celebratory firework. They think it's a loud, scary noise. And so from that perspective, it can cause a lot of anxiety. And, you know, my personally, my dog himself, he's usually not scared with um, a lot of the loud noises and a firework blue, I feel right next to my condo, made the loudest noise. It shook the ground. And that's the first time I've ever seen him scared of a firework. So it can happen to any animal um, uh, where there's that that perceived danger. Yeah, I've, I've seen a variety of pets have that panic when it came to the loud explosions and this and the sudden noises. When we think about the idea of of just relocating somewhere else for the night, you know, or for a couple of days to get away from the noise, does the Humane Society do they do they have an idea of where might be a better place to go? I because I I've had New Year's celebrations in in a lot of different areas on the island. I know in you know like Central Oahu, you know Eva Beach side. That's that's where things are seem to be the loudest, the the most fireworks, the most parties. But I've had New Year's up on the North Shore, and it seems to be much quieter up there. Is there anywhere that you feel might be a good way to kind of get away from the noise? Yeah, if you're able to find a safe space to stay for the night, or even you know. Um, stay with a friend's place up at the North Shore where it's a bit quieter or, you know, areas known here on Oahu are known to be a bit quieter during New Year's. If you're able to stay in those areas and your pet is super anxious, then, of course, that would be a really great option. Um, But if you're not able to, uh, just, you know, try your best to comfort your pet and also don't, you know, don't put the TV too loud. Just keep everything normal and just be next to your pet comforting them if you're going to be staying home this New Year's. When we think about how we celebrate New Year's here in Hawaii and, and how it's such a festive and a, and a family event and, and, and a tradition that is that um, you know has been going on for generations, what, what do you think is the best way to balance the local style of New Year's celebrations and compassion for pet owners who have pets that are adversely impacted by the noise? Yeah, I mean, I think having a conversation with your neighbors about what's going on, you know, knowing your neighbors, knowing if they have that pet that is anxious around fireworks, and just making sure that, you know, you're playing a part in your community. I think that's the most important thing is people talking to each other and solving solutions in a civil matter. And I believe, you know, pet owners understand that, you know, their pets get very scared during during firework displays. And most people understand that. So I think having that conversation or, you know, having that place to retreat to, it, it would be great options this holiday. Well, thanks so much for your time, Thomas. I really appreciate you talking to us. Okay. Well, thank you, Russell. It was nice meeting you. That was Thomas Hound, uh, Communications Coordinator for the Hawaiian Humane Society, talking with HPR's Russell Subiono about how to protect your pets over the New Year's Eve weekend. We'll have links to more information on the conversation page of our website, hawaiipublicradio.org, later today. today's backyard quiz, we told you about a bright red bird native to Molokai. It was already an endangered species when it was first recorded by a European naturalist, Scott Barchard Wilson, in the late 19th century. It had become a rare sight in the islands, in part because its scarlet red feathers made it an attractive material for the feather cloaks of the ali'i. Uh, the bird f- uh, fed on insects and larvae, but was also known to sip nectar from flowers. It was given the Latin name 
uh, Pariomyza flammae because it looked like a ball of fire as it flew from tree to tree. There are a number of additional causes of the bird's extinction, most of them the same as those that continue to threaten other forest birds in Hawaii. Habitat loss, uh, avian disease caused by mosquitoes, and introduced predators. The name of this bird, well, in Hawaiian, it's called uh, Kakavahie, and in English, it's known as the Molokai Creeper. And congrats to our winner today, Jeff on Maui. You got it right. That's today's quiz. If you have an idea for one, write to talk back at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for HPR comes from UH Manoa's Osher Lifelong Learning Institute for ages 50 and older, with virtual courses designed to engage the mind and enrich lives. Classes begin Tuesday, January 17th. More by searching Osher Hawaii. We all know what we need to do to be healthy, wealthy, and wise. But knowing is not enough. It's a first step. It's useful to have some insight into yourself because then you can begin to design solutions. You can begin to look for solutions. And science has actually a lot of solutions. How to outsmart ourselves this week on Hidden Brain from NPR. Beginning this evening at 7, following Living on Earth. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art with the immersive exhibition Rebecca Louise Law, Awakening, Exploring the Human Connection to Nature. Now on view, details at honolulumuseum.org. New Year's is a chance for many local families to engage in their individual holiday traditions. Many eat ahi sashimi, pansit, or maybe they pound mochi. And for those who focus on desserts, one local business has been the go-to spot for rich and buttery pies. Holy's Bakery on Hawaii Island. It's been around for over 90 years. The family business has been able to survive several economic ups and downs in that time. And when you think about how long they've been in business and how turbulent a family business can be, we wondered how have they been able to keep the company strong after all this time. The Conversations Russell Subiano sat down with owner uh, Jana Koholoha'a this year. She's the great-granddaughter of the original owners. Here's a rebroadcast of that interview. First things first, what's your favorite pie? My original favorite was the apple. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, I, after taking over this year, you know, I'm going to try them all and, you know, figure out if there was any other ones that I liked. And I actually, my favorite is the pear now. Yeah, I'm, I'm surprised that, that pear, pear pie is so popular here. I've talked to other uh, pie businesses in the past, and they, they've also said, People are very excited about it, and pear's not uh, doesn't seem like it's a uh, a fruit that many people associate with pie, but it seems to be very popular. When you think about pear, it's like, oh, how did you know? How does that you know? It's, it's the same as apple, but you know, it's just pear. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Very interesting. So, for many locals, especially those that grew up on the Big Island like me, pie is synonymous with Holy's Bakery. And I have plenty of memories eating apple pie, peach pie growing up. I've, I know I've had the coconut and the, and the pear as well. From what I've been able to gather on the internet, Yoshio and Miyaki Hori started the bakery first by selling white bread and anpan in Kapa'au. But it wasn't until 20 years later that their daughter, Margaret, I believe your, your auntie Margaret, convinced them to make and sell pies can you share with our listeners how pies became part of Holy's Bakery? Yes. So my auntie, she used to have one of her sisters be her taster when she would they would experiment. And she told me that when my aunt wanted to uh, make some pies, that's when the whole thing with the pies came about. And th- my, my great-grandparents, they used to also make pies, but not... The buttered ones, and that's kind of how the buttered frozen pie started. That sounds like such a like such a good job, right? To be the pie taster. Yeah, <laughs> yeah right. <laughs> so I, that's I, when they did the the buttered pies, and the frozen part came came about where she wanted, you know, that people could just 
um, they sell it frozen, and people could take it home and bake it, so it'll be fresh. I love putting the pies into the oven, and then you know, an hour later, my house smells like apple pie. I think mm-hmm. that's that's part of the 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 great part of of eating a, a Holy's bakery pie. You mentioned your your great grandparents, and I imagine the bakery has played a big role in your childhood. What kind of memories do you have of your grandparents, Yoshio and Miyaku? When I was born, my grandpa, they were the ones that were mostly in the bakery at that time already. My great-grandma and my grandpa, they were kind of retired already. But my memory was we, you know, we would be there every day. I mean, we grew up in there. We slept in the storeroom on flower bags because our whole family would make pies and pastries and you know, every morning I would wake up and my grandpa would have some kind of breakfast pastry for me in the morning, but literally grew up in the bakery. Sometimes I hear I hear stories about kids who grew up with like their their fathers were fishermen or or, or their parents worked in a, a mill or something like that and they always kind of kind of smelled like their family business. Did you always kind of smell like apple pie? <laughs> <laughs> smell like sugar. Sugar? Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I imagine there's worse things, but uh, sugar's not too not too bad. <laughs> sugar and dough. Yeah. All right. Well, and you know, it it seems to me that the buttery flavor of your pie crust is probably one of the things that makes your pies distinctive. I don't want you to give away any family secrets, but can you share with our listeners? You know, and kind of what's changed and what stayed the same in the last 70 or so years? So all of the recipes are the same. We have not changed anything. And the only the only issues that we have right now with the supply chain is getting the ingredients. So that's been a, a huge challenge this year. So the supply chain issues that, that we've kind of had across the board in, in the last uh, year or so. Those those have impacted you guys as well. Yes, Has it a lot. Can you say what ingredients have been at, impacted the most? Have it been the filling or the spices? Yeah, it, it mostly the shortening and the pie pans. There's an aluminum shortage. You're still making pies in the same building that, that they started making pies in. You guys haven't had to expand. You've been able to keep your operation in that same location. Yes, we've we're still in the same bakery and and we've do everything the same. You know, with this with this pandemic that had that came about at the beginning of 2020, it's impacted a lot of local businesses, uh, kind of put the squeeze on many of them at certain po- uh, points during the pandemic, especially during the shutdown. How has your business been able to adapt? Well. When I first started in February, when I took over the business from my auntie, you know, I wasn't even thinking, you know, of the challenges. And so everything was running smoothly. And, you know, when when we started having issues, and this was right before Thanksgiving, when we needed to make the most pies Mm -hmm. of the year. And, you know, I just had to, I really had to adjust to what was available without compromising the quality and the and the taste of the pies and that's you know we've we've come across that obstacle and it actually turned out really really well so now I'm at the point where if we do have any issues with the ingredients that I'm able to adjust and 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 not have to compromise the quality and the taste and your the staples of your pie flavors they are apple, peach, pear, and coconut. But I've seen on your social media accounts that you offer special pies every so often. I, I saw blueberry cream cheese and peach cream cheese were the last specials. Are there future plans to offer special flavors from time to time or add new flavors to that classic lineup? Yes, absolutely. We're we're always experimenting and my auntie, she's, you know, she's 91 now, so she's the one that helps us with the tasting. So it's 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 pretty cool that she's still here to to give us that guidance too with the with the pies. But yeah, we're going to have more variety hopefully within the next year. All right. Ideally, like what what would be like something something you'd like to offer down the road, a, a new flavor? 
We're thinking of Ube. Yeah. Yeah, that so sounds that's, really good. That's kind of where we're we're heading right now is trying to get a Ube out there. All right. I'm excited about that. Some Ube pie with some coconut ice cream. Oh, man. Yeah. Yeah, that sounds yeah. really good. <laughs> All right. There are many ingredients that go into a business that enables it to stay in business. Holy's Bakery has been in business for over 90 years. That's amazing. It's seen its mm-hmm. shares of ups and downs, good economic times. It's surviving the pandemic. What's the secret to such longevity? Well, all I know is you have to have that passion to work in the bakery and and the work ethic because it's not easy. And if you don't have the passion, and when I look at how everyone was missing the pies during the pandemic, that is kind of what made me think that, you know, I can't let the legacy of the bakery die because I just see how much people just love our pies. I love that. Ed. And thank you so much for, for putting in that effort to, to keeping the, the tradition alive. And I, I love this idea that, that this business has been handed down through four generations. I commend Holy's Bakery for such longevity and for being such a pillar of the community. Yeah, yeah. So our family is really honored. My children, they're they're young adults, and they see they see the potential in expanding the business and you know keeping it alive. That's great to hear that the pies will be around for the foreseeable future. Yeah, Jana, thank you so much for your time. I really had fun talking to you. Oh, thank you. That was a Hanahoe of an interview between uh, Jana Kaho'o'a'a, the owner of Holy's Bakery on Hawaii Island, and HBR's Russell Subiono. That is it for us today. Up tomorrow, it's a Hawaiian music Hanaho show featuring musicians from the Peter Moon Band and the beloved Robert Casamero. Got some questions about, you know, something you might have heard on our show? You can call our Talkback line, 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. And if you want to listen back to something you heard, go online and find the Conversation Podcast on Spotify, Apple, or anywhere else you tune in. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation.